Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Anthony Painter. Um, I'm director of the RSA's Action and Research Centre. Um, I'd like to welcome you all here uh, for today's special event. Um, before we begin, uh, can I ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent? We are filming today um, and live streaming over the web. So a big welcome to those of you joining us online. Um, and a reminder, the hashtag is RSAMarks if you'd like to join in the discussion on Twitter. Now, our guest speaker today needs very little introduction. David Harvey is the English-speaking world's leading expert on Marx, and his RSA animate, The Crises of Capitalism, has been viewed over three million times. Um, do check it out on YouTube channel if you haven't seen it already. Um, but you won't shift the big number that's there because you'll have to watch it very many times to do so. Um, he's professor of the Graduate Center of uh, City University in New York uh, and has published many best-selling books. His latest, Marx, Capital um, and the Madness of Economic Reason is, is just out um, in attempts to bring uh, a new generation of readers to one of the RSA's more noteworthy fellows, uh, Karl Marx. Um, David's work spans a huge range of issues. In this latest book, he dissects Das Kapital and other elements of Marx thinking and introduces them to this fresh audience and applies them to the ideas of today. You're constantly reading a wide spectrum of ideas and David names, David's names crops up, um, whether it's ongoing and current financial crises or you'll be reading about urban sociology and change and suddenly David's work will uh, rear its head. So um, a, a wide um, expanse of, of knowledge and, and a life's work and I'm looking very much to hear your thoughts, David. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here. This is my uh, third appearance, and it's uh, a lot of fun always to do this. Um, for, for many years, I used to teach uh, an introductory geography class, and then I used to start the class off by asking people, where did their breakfast come from? Uh, and I'd ask them to think about that for the next week, and you know, and then come back next week and tell me where it came from, and got all kinds of answers, including the one that said, I didn't have breakfast this morning <laughs> because, uh, you know, it got a little complicated. But the point about it was to kind of say that very simple things like breakfast involves millions of people around the world, commodity movements around the world, and all kinds of people involved. And, and, and there's a sort of picture that emerges as, as commodities sort of whizzing around the world, uh, getting on people's plates and, 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 uh, and the like. And it seemed to me... Um, it was, it was useful to ask, well, how does it move? Uh, and, of course, uh, in our society, it moves because it's profitable. So, in a sense, all these commodities are sort of taken along by lots of currents of flows of capital. And so, therefore, this notion of capital as a flow and a constant flow, uh, which is very crucial to the reproduction of daily life, started to become very important to me. And I, in the last book, I sort of thought to myself, now, how do I visualize a flow of this kind, and is there some way I can make a, uh, a picture of it? And my inspiration for this was this uh, diagram of the water cycle. Um, and the interesting thing that interested me most is that in the same way that capital sometimes takes the form of money, sometimes of commodities, sometimes of productive activity, so in the water cycle you also get what Marx calls these metamorphoses, that at one point it's a liquid in the ocean, then it becomes a, a vapor, and then it moves around, and then it takes on all kinds of different forms of precipitation. Some of it moves back very fast into the ocean, some of it gets lost underground, some of it stays sort of in, in ice caps, some of it gets taken up by uh, human and, and, and uh, animal and vegetable and uh, activities, and it comes back into the atmosphere directly without going through the ocean. So, you know, this is a kind of a cycle, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. And Marx actually is often talking about the circulation of capital, as a, and, and so I thought, well, could I, could I make a picture of, of, of it? Uh, and, and so what I did was this, if I can figure out one of these wonderful things. Is this the next one? Well, as usual, I, I got a, is that? This one there? Okay, there we are. Now, this is nowhere near as pretty as the one before, and I'm sorry about that. But uh, on the other hand, and it's a little bit more, more complicated, but actually the elements are, are, are rather similar, except in a number of uh, 
in significant ways. First, start at the bottom there, and you see that there's something called money capital. And money capital uh, is part of the money which is used as capital, which is money going to be used to make more money. Now, there's a lot of money that doesn't do that, so it's not all money is doing that, but some of it is taken up and used as capital. And in, in Marx's analysis of industrial capitalism and the capitalist mode of production, that money capital is used to buy commodities of two sorts, labor power and means of production. Now, in order for that to happen, there has to be already a labor market in existence, already a you know, sophisticated commodity market, so you can buy your raw materials and your machinery and all that kind of thing. And then the capitalist puts that together in an act of production, a production of commodities. And these, these commodities are going to reproduce the value in the money form in a commodity form through the application of labor. And so Marx talks about the application of labor to reproduce value and to produce, uh, uh, as we'll see, uh, surplus value in the form of commodities. And the commodities are of three kinds, wage goods, luxuries, means of production. The means of production flow back in. Wage goods go off to reproduce the labor power. Luxuries go off into another market. But the important thing here is that there's a movement from production of commodities to the realization of the value of commodities in money form in the market. Now, once it's the, 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 the value is in money form again, then it can get distributed in various forms. It's hard to distribute the commodities directly, but you can distribute the money. And you distribute it in the form of wages. Uh, some of it is taken up by taxes. Then there's the profit of the industrialists. Then there's the merchants who take a profit. Then there's the landlord takes a profit. And the bankers and the financiers take interest. So it's distributed. So you've got the moments in this process of production, realization, and distribution. Once it's in the distribution, it's back in the money form, and what gets done with it? Well, some of it is going to flow back in the form of demand, because uh, the workers need uh, to live, and, spend, and, and, and the state needs to spend, and the industrialists need to live. So some of it flows back as consumer-effective demand. But some of it then comes back in as a reinvestment in the process again. So there's reinvestment. Uh, so this is a cycle. And it continues on, on, on. And the point about this is to say, what, what, what can we say about, about the character of this cycle? Now, the interesting thing about Marx's work, and I'll just show this because I'm not going to give a basic talk about Marx. Marx's work. Marx wrote three volumes of Capital. The first volume of Capital is all about production and valorization. The second volume is all about realization. And the third volume is about distribution. And my argument a lot of the time to people is, if you want to understand Marx's concept of capital, you've got to read all three volumes of capital. And the problem is that, you know, in the English-speaking world at least, there's, there's something which I call a kind of disease called volume one-itis, <laughs> which says that anybody who reads Marx, reads volume one, says this is a marvelous piece of literature, it's great, they get about 20 pages into volume two and say, this is boring, I'll put it aside, you know. And volume three, they say, this is chaotic, I don't know, some of it's interesting, some of it's not, so they tend to lay it aside. And they don't do a systematic uh, analysis of, of what capital looks like from the standpoint of these three volumes of capital. Now, Marx actually used the concept of a totality. And the totality here is, in fact, the unification of the three volumes of capital. And it's not really been done very well. So one of the things I'm trying to do is to sort of take a little crack at uh, unifying the three volumes of capital and then seeing how this process uh, actually uh, then, then, then works. Now, there are a number of things that, uh, that, that, that go on in and around this circulation process. And I want to point out something here. Marx never wrote about capitalism. Now, this is a very funny thing. He never wrote about capitalism. He wrote about capital. And he wrote about, wrote about the laws of motion of capital. So he was very aware from the very beginning he was not going to write about everything that was going on in society. And a lot of Marxists and a lot of people who are anti-Marxists kind of had this fantasy that Marx believed he was understanding everything in the world. And that, you know, he's not. He's, he's got a very narrow focus. He's looking on this engine, this flow of capital, and he's analyzing the problems that exist within this. But the, 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 the contextual situation in which this is happening is important, and Marx mentions it. For instance, the whole relation to nature, what Marx calls the free gifts of nature, the production, reproduction, and destruction of, of spaces and places and nature and so on. This is a very important part of what capitalism is about. And Marx knows it's there, says at various points, free gifts of nature are important, but I'm not going to deal with all of that because, you know, that's another story and I'm, I'm, I'm not getting into it. He does the same about culture and the production, reproduction, and destruction of human nature and culture. 
that this to him is very important, the, 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 the knowledge in the, of, 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 that exists within a cultural configuration, the knowledge that exists within, within the, the heads of, of laborers and, and, and everybody else and thinkers and so on, is an important uh, sort of asset which is utilized by capital and is actually produced by capital in terms of R&D, as is uh, environment, uh, environment. So we can talk about the production of nature which is about the production of what Marx calls second nature, which is making cities and environments and cleared lands and all that kind of stuff. And there's the production and destruction of, 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 of culture, making culture into something that is more amenable to this circulation process of capital. So a lot of this is going on. And of course, reproduction of labor power involves a whole set of issues, which um, Marx again says, I'm not going to deal with. So he's very clear in capital what he's going to deal with and what he's not going to deal with. And, and, and therefore, you have to read capital understanding those assumptions. And that's, that's terribly important. Now, for me, the exciting thing about this is to ask certain questions about it. Well, where, what, what sorts of things do we see? Now, one of the things that differentiates this site, this, from the water cycle <coughs> is, in, in, in a sense, the water cycle is a cycle. But Marx knows perfectly well that this is not a cycle. This is a spiral. And there's a big difference between a cycle and a spiral. And it's a spiral because it has to grow. Why does it have to grow? It's because you've got to produce always surplus value, which is the origin of profit. If you don't have more at the end of the day, and you haven't got more money or value at the end of the day than you started out with, then the system breaks down. So the system has to ba is based on the fact that it has to grow. And this means it's a spiral. And the spiral form is very different. And, and Marx actually, at a certain point, does sort of hint this, 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 uh, about this whole kind of question of the complications that arise out of the spiral form. And there's a kind of language which Hegel used, and Marx doesn't really sort of, he sort of secretly invokes it, when he talks about the difference between a virtuous infinity and a bad infinity. And the virtuous infinity is something that can repeat itself forever, you know. And, and, and you can measure it, and you know about it, and this kind of thing. It's a bit like you know, uh, the Earth going around the sun. It's a kind of a virtuous infinity. I mean, it won't be, it's not totally infinite, but it's infinite as far as we're concerned. So it keeps on going round, 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 and produces the seasons and all those kinds of things. So this is, a, this is if you like, a virtuous circle, because you can grasp it, you can understand it, uh, and, and all the rest of it. A, a, a bad infinity is one that just keeps on growing, and you have no idea where it's going to grow to. And, and, and capital is a bad infinity. And right now, it's in a very bad state of bad infinity. You know. Compound growth forever is impossible. Compound growth, when Marx was writing in the 1850s, 1860s, was not really a problem. You had, you know, capital was just dominating in, in very small parts of the world, in Western Europe and, and, and Britain and the eastern seaboard of the United States. And that was it. The rest of the world was wide open for this kind of process to, 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 to move into. Now, you can't say that. China's involved. You know, Russia's now involved. Indonesia's involved. India's involved. In other words, we're now talking about a compounding growth on something that's already huge. And if you look at the rates of growth and what it means in terms of how much you know, extra uh, 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 production capacity you're going to have to create in the next few years, you look at this and you kind of say, this is kind of crazy. So the, in, the bad infinity is, 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 is part of this. The second thing is that where did the power come from in the water cycle? Well, it comes from you know, the radiation from the sun. And, and again, it's fairly constant, oscillates a little bit. Some of it gets trapped, and we know about global warming and that kind of thing. But it's a different kind of story. The sources of, of, of power within this system, it turns out they're, they're threefold. And it, they exist differently in the three volumes of capital. This is what's so interesting. In the first volume, it's individual entrepreneurs, the greedy capitalist you know, who gets there and exploits labor and, and gets the profit out of the creation of surplus value and all those kinds of things. So the figure that comes over in volume one is, 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 uh, is, the, is the greedy capitalist. In volume two, you're talking about realization. And realization depends, as I put up here, on the existence of wants, needs, and desires. How does capitalism create new wants, needs, and desires? And actually, if you think about history of capitalism, it's been really very much about the management and creation of new wants, needs, and desires. And those wants, needs, and desires have to be created in such a way as to match this bad infinity. So we start to get all kinds of things going on about the rapid transformation of wants, needs, and desires.
and just think about your cell phones and all that technology which you've been sort of picked up and all in the last 15 years and the new model comes out and you chuck the old one away and, or you lose it, you know, or whatever. I mean, this is a very rapid turnover. And I, I jokingly kind of say, well, I don't joke because it's true, I actually still use my grandmother's knives and forks. And if capital only made goods that lasted 100, you know, 150 years, it would, have, it would have been dead a long time ago. So it actually has to sort of create this, and, and so it actually has to create a lifestyle. A lifestyle which matches, once, you know, m matches all of this growth in, in, in production. And, and when I think about this, uh, my classic example is U.S. suburbanization. Suburbanization after World War II was a creation of a white lifestyle which involved everybody having a car, everybody, you know, having a lawnmower. Well, I always liked that idea of, you know, suddenly there's this big demand for lawnmowers. And you say, where did that come from? Since, since time immemorial, have people been longing and dying <laughs> for, to have a lawnmower? Has that been that big ambition in life? No, you create a suburban lifestyle. Well, you have to have a lawnmower. If you don't, you know... And the idea you'd have one collective lawnmower down the end of a cul-de-sac somewhere, forget it, you know, I mean, that's not the way this thing works. So creation of one's needs and desires is very much there in terms of creating whole ways of life. And the ways of life which gets created have to, have to fit. And, and actually, ways of life will get rapid, more and more rapidly transformed. And, and so all sorts of kinds of things are happening up there, which are very important. And the realisation of value... Is, is, is actually a complicated kind of process because the realization is not the same as the production of value. In fact, the realization can occur in a different part of the world. I look at an Apple computer and say, okay, this is made in Shenzhen in China. Well, it turns out that Foxconn that made Apple computers has a profit rate, according to the Financial Times, of about 3%. Uh, the computers are sold, say, in the United States, where Apple is, and Apple has a profit rate of 27%. What this means is that value created in China is actually realized in the United States. So the relationship between production and realization then becomes a kind of an interesting sort of, sort of dilemma. And then the issue arises, well, what happens if capital gets up there and cannot realize its value in money form? Let's suppose there's no demand for it. It doesn't matter how greedy the entrepreneurs are at the beginning. It doesn't matter how effective they are. They're not going to go anywhere if they can't sell their product. And actually, right in the very first section of Volume 1 of Capital, Mark says, if you can't sell your product, there's no value. It's gone. Everything's involved in it's gone. So the realization question becomes a very, very, very interesting issue. And if there's no realization, then somebody has to make it. And here, actually, historically, the power of the state has been very important. I mean, when I talk about suburbanization in the United States, it wasn't as if somehow or other, you know, people got up and said, oh, well, we're going to suburbanize. No, no, the state gets in and builds highways, it builds all these things, it starts to actually plan everything in such a way. And so it's a state-fueled suburbanization process that works. And this has gone on again historically. I mean, I, other example I use is Haussmann's Paris. Uh, one of the ways in which they got things out was, you know, build the, rebuild the boulevards and all these kinds of things. Well, again, this was not, this was not something that somebody said, hey, I think I'm going to go build a boulevard. This was the state plus uh, finance capital that would really get in and, 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 and do that. So, in fact, we find state expenditure suddenly become one of the big, big pushes of, 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 of that. They operate through realization and by changing... The incentive structures, they actually therefore feed back onto the greedy entrepreneurs and say, okay, greedy entrepreneurs, go out there and start making lawnmowers. You know, I mean, so, so if you were smart in 1945, you'd have gone into the lawnmower business. You know, so, so, so the realization thing. Then there's the question of where does the state get its money from uh, in order to launch the state expenditures? Well, as we know, most of the state expenditures are, are debt-financed. So they borrow the money. Where do they borrow it from? Well, they borrow it from the banks. Well, they borrow it out of savings. In, in, so they're actually, within the field of distribution, there's also a tremendous power which enters into this system. Now, if you read Marx and you only read Volume 1, you don't see these other two forms of power. State power, which is a kind of a Keynesian world, if you like, of state expenditures, which was very common throughout the capitalist world in the 1960s. But now, you see actually, taking over from the Keynesian world, we have actually a financialized world which is taking over. And what's the financialized world doing? It's creating money. And it's creating money and doing it in such a way as to push this system by lending money... Instead of people starting out and just using money capital, 
they're, they're borrowing money because, the, st because the, the banks come down and say, hey, I've got a lot of money, I want you to borrow it, I want you to get, set it to work. So you suddenly start to find a debt-financed economy, a debt-financed economy which comes absolutely critical. And that is where we're at today. If you look at the three sources of power, you would say, in the 19th century, maybe it was the individual entrepreneurs. In, after the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, it was very much state-led. And then that sort of uh, is still there, but, but then gets, uh, if you like, swallowed up uh, by the way in which money is created within the distributional field and then is circulated as interest-bearing capital, which is circulating <coughs> debt. And the circulation of debt is a very interesting thing, because debt is a claim upon future labor. If somebody borrows money, then they've got to work to pay it off. And the more debt there is, the more people are actually then committed to having to pay it off. I mean, this is the problem with student debt. I mean, students get out and they're committed for life to you know, pay back that debt. And, and we actually move into a debt economy, where debt becomes a major means of control of the dynamics of the system. You can't afford to get out of the system because you're indebted. Now, this idea was actually there back in the 1930s, because the, the suburbanization in, in, uh, did entail uh, some aspect of financialization. And that was, for instance, in the United States, it was a 30-year mortgage. And the 30-year mortgage was created to give everybody a possibility of, of, be, of becoming a homeowner. But one of the things that was said at the time, you know, 1930s, communist parties around, all the ruckus going on, and street demonstrations and so on. One of the things that was said in the United States about this was, debt-encumbered homeowners don't go on strike. Okay. Revolution will not come from the suburbs. You're safe. Suburbanize everybody. Put them out there. They're not going to create a revolutionary force anymore. And, and actually, this is, this is, here's, here's, here's the thing right now. A lot of the stasis in society is because we're so damn indebted that our future is already foreclosed. We don't have a choice. And, and actually, if you look at the figures on how much debt has increased, you find some astonishing features right now. The whole global debt now is around 250% of global GDP. Now, back in 1970, if any country got to more than about 80% of its GDP in debt, it was considered a case that needed IMF, Structural Adjustment Program, to sort the debt out. But now the whole world is 250% in debt. And it's not, only, you know, it's not only with us, it's with other, other things. I mean, here's, 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 for example, the growth of debt in the United States. All sectors, that is, private, public, and, and, and corporate. Relatively small amount of indebtedness back in 1950. It starts to take off in 1970, 1980. It does wee up. And it has a little hiccup in 2007, 2008. But you would have thought after 2007, 2008, they would have learned a lesson and they would have backed off. No, 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 no. You go much higher. You go much higher. And, and actually, some of the more astonishing things are, for example, China. China, overall debt. Look what happened. 2007, China got into crisis because the US export market crashed. And therefore, all the export industries suddenly lost jobs and nobody knew, knew what to do. So the Chinese decided they were going to rebuild their country with huge amounts of infrastructural investments, huge amounts, uh, building new cities. China had zero miles of high-speed rail network in 2007. They now have something like 15,000 miles. They created 15,000 miles of high-speed rail network in 10 years. Okay, how did they do that? Well, they, they went into debt. Look how much debt they've got now. You know, you know, look how fast it went. But if you've got all that debt, then you actually, and you're, you're making houses and, and that kind of thing, and about 25% you know, of Chinese GDP is just taken up in building houses and nothing but houses, somebody's got to buy them. Well, how do, how, how do people buy them? Well, you have to give them the means to borrow. So what's happening to borrowing? This is the China household debt to GDP ratio, which starts off in 2013 and goes from 33% to something like 43% in, in, you know, in, in, in three or four years. So this is a huge indebtedness. So the world is wallowing in this indebtedness. At the same time, it's also doing this crazy stuff of building and trying, trying to get out of the indebtedness. And the China case is a very interesting one. Trying to get it out of it with, with this massive investment in the production of place, space, and nature, which is, in effect, what China's doing with all kinds of problems with nature, by the way, which 
But one of the consequences of that is a tremendous increase in, in, in certain kinds of, of production. Uh, for example, this is a, this is a, the, the bottom blue line of this graph is the total consumption of cement in the United States over the last 100 years. Okay? The red bars are the total consumption of cement in China. Well, you know, China got out of the crisis of 2007 and 2008 by spreading cement everywhere. <laughs> I mean, the high-speed rail network is a very good example. It's very cement-intensive, you know, and, 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 and very good example. But, this is, but, the, but, but China actually saved global capitalism by this kind of expansionism. But it was debt-driven, state-driven, and, and, and actually, if you look at all the raw materials that China has absorbed, uh, over the last few years, you see it rising very rapidly. Okay, this is, this is uh, world steel production. Look at what happened with China. Again, after, after 2000 or so, China just takes off. Look at copper. Again, copper. Now, if you happen to be a, a country with copper resources, like Chile, you did very well. You came out of the crisis of 2007, 2008 very fast. Brazil came out very fast because it's got iron ore and it's got uh, soybeans and all those kinds of things. So here you have, here you have a, a kind of dynamic that's going on within this system. And you can only understand it by saying, well, actually, the locus of the bad infinity right now is around, is, is, this, is, this is where it's at. And so we've got to start thinking about, about this and thinking about it now. Since 2013, a lot of this problem has, has reversed because China's got reached blockage point. It doesn't know exactly what to do. Uh, and uh, we're finding all sorts of interesting things as a result. For instance, this is uh, imports and exports of capital into China. Uh, the, the, dot, the dotted line is, is the, the foreign direct investment coming into China. But notice, again, in 2007, suddenly, uh, the outward investment takes over. And so China suddenly, if you, if you go to East Africa right now, you'll find Chinese companies all over the place who are, the, who are, who are building high-speed rail networks and rail networks and all this kind of stuff. You'll find the Chinese sort of investing in, in, in Piraeus. You'll find the Chinese investing all over. All, you know, because they've got surplus. They've got a bad infinity, and they don't know what to do with it. So what do they do? Well, they've, they've got this One Belt, One Road project now, which is absorbing vast amounts of you know, so They're re-engineering the global economy. Because, not because it's a good idea, but because that's the only way in which they can actually deal with the fact that they're indebted, and they've got all these surpluses, and they need to find some way out of it. So my point here is this, that actually that, that diagram I had is an interesting way to sort of think about the problems of the global economy. It's also an interesting way to think about where crises come from, because there's a tendency to sort of say, well, there's only one place where crises come from in the history of capitalism. Well, no, that's not true. If you look at the continuity of that, you say it can come from anywhere. It can come from the reproduction of labor power. It can come from, from so you actually have a completely different definition of crisis. Because as Marx said, you get crises not because things uh, don't sell or, or, or don't get realized, you get crises because they're not sold in time. So the temporality of the system, the speed up of the system becomes significant. So this picture that I tried to create in the book is based on that diagram, and it kind of says there's a lot of things you can start to say uh, when you actually have a simple kind of version. And in the same way that I think the hydrological cycle was always, an you know, as a geographer, is an incredibly interesting way to look at it and say, okay, now I get it, and now I can kind of start to think about other, you know, many of the things that derive from it. So I think by using that diagram, you can start to raise all kinds of questions, and which to me is the most important thing that an academic can do. So thank you. I'll leave it there. I'd like to put that up there. Take a seat. I'm very fond of this. <laughs> Okay. All right. Brilliant. Thank you, David. Um, I want to go back to your, your starting point, actually. Um, and you, you described the in and around the, this system of production, this flow of value um, in, the, at, well, in definitionally capital. Why, to go back to your initial contention, given that Marx was quite deliberate and contained in his analysis 
um, in this respect, and you, you explore this in, in the book. In fact, you discuss um, how he didn't come to a settled view on civil society, so he never wrote that portion of the book. Why do you think he's been um, interpreted as having a total systemic overview and, and, and a total philosophical system? I, uh, um, you know, this is hard to, to explain. I think that uh, uh, there are, there's a whole sort of tradition of Marxism that I think has made claims which go way, way beyond what the, are justified by actually what he did. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. There has been a kind of a, uh, a hero, no question, hero worship, uh, you know, and I think some of the criticisms that are made on that front are, 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 are justified. Um, the, other, the other thing is that, of course, Marx never finished uh, his volume two and three. Uh, he didn't do a volume on the state, which he said he would. Or he didn't do one on civil society. He didn't want to do one on the world market. He did, you know, all kinds of things that he thought he was going to do but didn't uh, do. So, so it was it was it was incomplete. Yet he did make claims in various places uh, of talking about a totality, but he never really defined what the totality was. And what I'm, I think, trying to do is say, well, there is a limited notion of the totality of capital, which is not the totality of capitalism. Uh, there's a, there is a form which you can rescue Marx's notion of totality and try by looking at the three volumes, you can sort of see what, he's, what he did do and what he, what he deliberately left aside. And, and, and when, I, when I teach this and, and start explaining to people that he makes these assumptions in volume one and volume two and volume three, and you've got to understand that all of the statements in those volumes are contingent on those assumptions. Drop the assumptions, get a different story. And I, 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 so I think, uh, again, there's a lot of work that, that uh, uh, we who are in, into this have to do, and, and, and I have to say, um, um, you know, there's quite a lot of dogmatic Marxism around. Well, I think you, you, you absolutely uh, avoid that, and, and almost to say, I was kind of taken by surprise by the final paragraph, um, because in it you essentially say that this is one and a very important way of viewing the world. We can't ignore it. Um, we should... Um, we, we, we should engage with it, but it almost implies there are other ways of, of, of viewing the system which have equal validity. Yeah. Well, there are, there are, put it this way, there are, there are other issues. I mean, I, when I'm presenting this system, for example, in the United States, I always run into immediately the question, what are you saying about race yes. and race relations? Yes. And I say, well, you know, Marx did not deal with those things, and I'm not saying he's right or he's wrong, but you've got to understand that actually you can see a lot of the problems of how capitalism works by looking at Marx's rather restricted definition. Yes. Uh, but I, so that doesn't certainly say that I personally think that racism is a secondary or uninteresting aspect. I mean, in the United States right now, the for example, the racial question is really, is really front yeah. foreground, and I, I, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to say, you know, it's secondary or anything of that kind. I, I, I want to say that if you want to know what's how how the financial system is working and why it's doing some of the things and some of the dangers of the of the bad infinity, then this is the way I've set it up is a good way to look at it. But there are many other kind of social kind of questions, which uh, gender comes up as well, of course. And, and indeed, state power. I mean, the, the, the Chinese example that you give, you can view that through a very different lens. You can see the primary goal of um, Chinese policy being the interest of the Chinese Communist Party and accumulation of political power as opposed to material power, and material power being a means to, to that end. And that's a, a very important different di dimension. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I. I have, Marx didn't actually write about taxation, but I put taxation in the system because it seemed to me absolutely impossible to really deal with distribution without talking about taxation. And, and, and state expenditures become you know, absolutely critical. So I, I've, I've slid those into the argument, even though they are not in the, uh, any of the three volumes of, of capital. So yeah, I've changed a few things here and there. And, 
but you can see this, the functioning of the production system being in the service of something like the Chinese Communist Party rather than the other way around. The traditional Marxist analysis would suggest the other way around, but you can, you can flip it quite easily and you, you can come up with a very plausible story in so doing. Well, you know, the reproduction of a, of, of a political system, yeah, obviously there are features of that kind. I mean, I, I, one of the things I have to say, I'm, you know, visiting in China more now than, than, than before, um, the, 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 the transformation of daily life in China for a mass of the population has been absolutely astonishing. So it's not just simply about the reproduction of the party. There's also uh, many of the things talking about here, about the, the, re, the rebuilding of places and spaces. And, and of course, the speed of it all is just... Yeah, it's, 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 it's beyond belief. You know. and, and clearly it's pushing at the environmental limits, so you don't have to spend very long in Beijing to realise realize that, you know. Yeah, although I had a great time when I was in Beijing, it turned out it was perfectly blue skies, it was beautiful and everything was great, and then I realised there was an international meeting where 40 foreign leaders were coming to town, <laughs> so they closed all the factories down the week before. <laughs> so so I, I was the one week in Beijing where it was a perfectly blue sky, it was beautiful sun, everything else, and these foreign leaders were pictured coming into this sunny kind of clear blue sky environment. <laughs> <visit> more often. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, I mean, one, one thing that struck me, and I, I kind of wish when I was you know, reading Das Kapital 20 years ago at University Library, I kind of had your volume there because I might have got further into it than I did or claimed to anyway. Um, but one thing that came through, I think, reading, reading your volume, of course, you, you often think about Marx as a, as a social theorist. You think about him as a, as a humanist or moral, moral philosopher. But Marx as a systems analyst is a really interesting figure, it seems to me. Now, we're very used to these systems analyses now, not just in the natural sciences, but in the social sciences as well. But it's, it seems, on reading this, this is quite pioneering in, in the middle of the 19th century. Oh, I, I, I think he was, he was very pioneering on a lot of, a lot of levels. And, and I, I don't think he's always been appreciated in, in that line, even even amongst Marxists, I think that some of this gets missed out. Uh, I mean, when I made this diagram, I was really surprised that nobody had really made a diagram like that before, you know. And I, I thought, well, you know, it's pretty obvious, uh, really. Uh, why? And I couldn't understand why I hadn't made it a long time before, too. <laughs> I kind of thought to myself, why, 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 you know. Well, the other, the other thing that he's ahead of his time on, and we kind of, we, we, this has got lost in the, in the midst of time, is this question of debt, it seems to me. And how, how on earth did we, as political economies, make, miss the elephant in the room, you know, crash into the iceberg that was debt, which, as you say, is critical to the, the, the flow of capital, but also a site of tension and crisis, as, as we now, we now realise. And Marx, of course, realises this in, in the mid-19th century, and towards the end of the 20th century, the early 21st century, we've almost forgotten this, yeah. and now we realise it. Well, I think the, the, you know, the problem is that the only place he really analysed actual crises was in, way in the depths of Volume 3. And, and it is the financial and commercial crisis he's looking at. <clears throat> and, and volume three is, is hard to figure out what's going on. I mean, Engels, when he put it together, kind of said, you know, there's parts of it, he said, I have no idea what, <laughs> what, I, what I should say. So I just took a, took a wild, wild yes. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you, if you read it carefully, you find all these kinds of things, and if you can put something together, you really see some incredible sorts of uh, insights, plus some crazy ideas. I mean, he, he had the idea that the joint stock company might be a transitional device towards a socialist economy. Wow. I mean, which is way, way off. <laughs> it was the early days of the joint yeah, stock right, company, no, in fairness. But, but, you know, again, um, one of the things about Marx, he's, he's often thinking about things and he then, he then reverses himself uh, on that. So, so some of his writing, particularly in Volume Three, is is what we, what I would call three kinds of writings with Marx. One is uh, the writing of exploration, and that's a lot in Volume Three. Uh, then there's writing which is self-clarification, which is the kind of writing you get in the Grundrisse, where he knows what he's doing, but he's really trying to systematize it. And then there's the writing which is for representation of his thoughts, to, which is a Volume One. 
So you get these three styles of writing. And it's very important when you're reading them always to recognize where you're at in that. And so in the Grunrisse, he has a lot of this. Well, what if it was like this? Then that would happen, and then this would happen. And then, and then, and then he kind of says, well, but maybe this is too Hegelian, so let's start all over again. <laughs> uh, but then people come along and take what if, what if this, and, and treat it like it's some sort of gospel statement. And, and, and uh, so we, we've got to learn to read him, uh, I think, uh, generously and, 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 and as creatively as, 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 as possible, I think, because he's, he's, he's often, even these what if things are actually very, often, you know, very interesting to sort of follow up on. Do you think he, his thinking became too immersed in the, in the systems to the extent that his analyses of these sites of tension at the point of sort of valorization and realization and distribution right. and the social tensions within this came to some sort of um, sort of historical elevation, if you like, and where, where there were, were tensions and sites of potential discord and crises, he started to see laws of, of historical motion. And I mean, is my interpretation of that right, that this, this was an era where he kind of took a step too far beyond the analysis? Well, I think, I, I think well, the way I would put it is this. I think, you know, at every historical period, uh, every generation, if you like, uh, reads Marx very much in the light of their own kind of concerns. Like uh, I, I read it, obviously, I'm wallowing around in volume three around financial this and that because it's daft not to in the present circumstance. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, if you look at, uh, say, how Marxists read him, I mean, volume, uh, volume two and three were not really available till the end of the 19th century, and some of his other writings weren't available until the 1930s. And I think only now do we have the complete notes so that we can go back and look at how Engels reconstructed volume three and what Marx's original notes were, so we can actually go back and rewrite volume three, if you like, and say, okay, Engels did a poor job, I'm gonna do so, so we've now got the possibility, I think, uh, have a better understanding of much of what he, well, pretty much everything that he wrote, and and of course we have different uh, preoccupations, and 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 uh, like I say, uh, to read only volume one, which doesn't mention anything about uh, realization and assumes that there's no problem in the market. And, and it also assumes that there's no, no issue with uh, credit or anything like that. To read volume one now kind of seems like, you know, it's, it's going to give you a profoundly truncated view of, of, of it and one that's not necessarily so relevant to capitalist society right now. But there's, there is this undercurrent of historical materialism running, running through it. And, and the difference with natural systems and the type of systems that Marx is describing, of course, natural systems don't have goals or ends. They, they perpetuate um, and they change over time. They, they, they morph and they, they mutate. Whereas, whereas Marx has these, these ends at a certain point um, in, in, in mind. And was he on weaker ground there, ultimately? Um, well, I... He, I don't think he's on weaker ground. I think that we are likely to be on weaker ground if we don't uh, enter what, what you're talking about into the way in which we uh, use him and interrogate him. I mean, um, there are some parts of Marx which, to me, are, are, are totally irrelevant to my my present concerns. And of course, one of the one of the, one of the reasons I think my reading of Marx is a bit peculiar is because all along I've been interested in urbanization. Yes. And, and in, if you're interested in urbanization from the very get-go back in 1980s, uh, I, there's no way you could look at this without looking at the finance of investments in the, in the built environment, uh, and, and which meant that you're going to deal with capital accumulation and you're dealing with the what the Pereira brothers, bankers, were doing in Second Empire Paris. And so I would go to Marx and see what he thought about Emile Pereira and the financiers. And he has this wonderful way of representing them. As I said, they have the, the dual character of swindler and prophet. Uh, it's kind of a, 
and which is a sort of good way to kind of, kind of think of them. So I, I, I think that, that, you know, since I've always, I've always been trying to relate uh, Marx's writings to things going on around me, like you can see with the, you know, I see that graph on Chinese cement consumption, and I want to know what the hell's behind that. Why did that happen? Well, it's not hard to see that, you know, if you've got 30 million un unemployed people in, nine, in 2008, which it seems the Chinese did have because of the collapse of the export industries, you've got to put them to work. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to build things. Okay, we'll build things. I mean, we saw some of this in the 1930s uh, also. You know, I mean, Hitler built the autobahns and things like that. So, so uh, you know, that then gets you to think, well, how was that financed? And, you know, okay, where in Marx does he talk about this? Well, it's lost in all that crazy stuff he does in Volume 3. But you find some very interesting things in there. And, and, and to me, I think that's an important way to go. Right, I'm going to open it out to the audience. I'm going to take these questions in banks of three, if that's okay. I'm going to go with the lady here, the gentleman behind her, and then the gentleman um, towards the back there. We should have a roving mic uh, coming around somewhere. Uh, this lady right here. Hello. Um, very interesting diagram, but I wanted to ask you a point about it. On your left-hand side, you had uh, something about the free um, reproduction of human capital. And I wanted to know in what sense you thought it was free, and whether this is Marx's idea that it was free or just yours, because it seems to me that human capital comes at the expense of women and power over women, that um, it couldn't be done without. So. Thank you very much. David, many thanks. You mentioned lawnmowers in the 50s and iPhones now. Can capital in its um, bad infinity continue to rely on the individual consumer to drive this forward? I'm going to take this uh, gentleman. If you quickly pass the microphone backwards. And then, brilliant. Thanks so much. Hi. I wonder if I can just ask you a question. Uh, it's an area that you're not particularly, uh, that you don't write about a great deal, which is the music industry. But it's a, an industry where we've seen a particular commodity lose its kind of status and value and become in many ways free as such. And I, I wonder if that relates at all, A, to a movement towards a kind of post-capitalist era where capitalism is undermined by the, the notion of free, and also how that might fit with some of your, your other ideas like spatial fix, possibly. I'm asking you several questions. I apologize for that. That's a really, really interesting angle. Yeah, let me, let me take the... The, the, the free gifts, um, it's not Marx's idea, nor is it my idea. Uh, the, the point that Marx makes is that, that capital views these things as free gifts and basically doesn't care. And I think that uh, you know, Marx is often criticized highly for not paying enough attention to questions of social reproduction. Um, but I think that's blaming the messenger. Um, he doesn't do that because he says basically capital doesn't care. And certainly back then it didn't care. Now, there is, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, struggles all over that map, obviously the sphere of social reproduction is an arena of a very intense struggle and questions of gender and questions of that kind come up very, very uh, significantly. And again, it comes back a little bit to what I was saying about the question of race earlier, that, that uh, I'm, not arguing, I'm not arguing that that that's irrelevant. It's just within the value schema that capital sets up, capital does not value that. It doesn't, and I get the, get the same question about nature. You know, does nature contribute value? And a lot of people kind of say, yeah, it contributes value. And no, it doesn't. As far as the capital is concerned, it's a free gift, and it wants it to remain a free gift. They get very kind of upset when people start putting property rights around it, enclosing it, and then turning it into a commodity. And I had this argument with, uh, for instance, a lot of feminists working on uh, social reproduction about uh, you know, wages for housework. Well, I tried to point out to them, Marx says at a certain point that uh, to produce value in capitalism is a misfortune. 
because you're basically producing value for somebody else. So why would you want to have wages for housework, which would actually put you in a situation of producing value for somebody else on a wage system? I mean, why would you want to do that? So what I do in the book is to sort of, and, and you know, I've had this argument with, with my feminist colleagues over some time, and, and, and my, my, my point right now is that actually, uh, this comes back a little bit to the third question, uh, that, you know, the, the, the sorts of social relations which exist, say, in and around the social reproduction of labor power, and the, the, that's a complex question in itself because there are all sorts of issues going on and some of them are not particularly good or anything like that, I'm not saying... But that is a potential site, given that it's not commodified. It's, 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 it's an arena of non-commodified action which uh, actually, therefore, has the possibility to uh, be the site of the creation of an alternative to capitalist commodification. And, and so worked on in that kind of fashion, it's therefore uh, what I would call part of the anti-capitalist agenda and can be part of the anti-capitalist agenda in, in, very specific, uh, in very specific ways. So I would, I would want to... Uh, make that uh, kind of commentary. The same thing applies, uh, I think, to the question of the, you know, uh, the cultural industries, if you want to call it that, and what's happened to cultural industries. I mean, Marx has a very interesting uh, way of, uh, of, again, dealing with this. I mean, I quote it in the book. He's, he's, he's raising the question, did, did Milton create value when he wrote uh, Paradise Lost? And he kind of says, well, no, uh, Milton wrote Paradise Lost out of his own nature, he says, in exactly the same way that a silkworm makes silk. And, and, and I think it's kind of interesting because then he says, of course, once Paradise Lost existed, then he sold the rights to it for five pounds and it became a commodity. And as soon as publishers started to publish it as a commercial thing, then it became actually the content which helped to procure surplus value. So that's the, the sort of... So there is a free gift there, and, and, and I think that the music industry has seen a great deal of, of appropriation of the free gifts, uh, of creative capacities and, 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 and the like, and it becomes very difficult, of course, then for musicians to make a living as musicians. And, and of course, this then gets into the question of uh, should there be patents, should there be property rights? If so, how should they, what should they look like? And, and I've had this argument, again, with authors, you know. I mean, okay, uh, there's, there's copyright. Uh, a lot of people on the left thinks, think it should be free and open and no copyright, so they actually make that practice by going to the Russian website where you can get a PDF of almost anything you like for nothing. And, uh, and, and, and the, result, the result is, if, since the left does that, most left-wing authors have a much lower... Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, we get more references than, 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 we get, than, than we get book sales, you know. <laughs> the right-wing authors get book sales, and so publishers publish right-wing authors because they get more money from the right-wing authors they get from the left-wing because the left-wing people always get them free on the Russian websites, you know. So there are all sorts of questions of this kind. Now, I, I, don't, I don't need uh, the royalties for a living, but there are some people who need royalties for a living, and I think that um, I you know, did work one time for a week or two with the Musicians' Union in, in New York uh, about, about questions of this kind. And if you kind of said it should all be free uh, and open, they, they got mad as hell. I mean, they kind of get, you know, this is the only way, the only way we can get, get, uh, get money. Um, sorry, the third question was... Can the individual consumer... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, well, the individual consumer has never uh, been at the center of this. Uh, I, I think that uh, there's, there's always been a project of some kind which is, which is orchestrated. I, I, I mean, the reconstruction of, uh, of Paris under Haussmann was, was something that was orchestrated by the state and by uh, the rise of these new credit institutions, the Pereira Brothers banking structures and, 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 and the like. So 
uh, all along, I think the the final consumer, it, yeah, they're they're important in a way, but but I don't think that it's ever been a case that just simply their final consumption. Uh, there is something here, by the way, which I think is very interesting, which is that the turnover time of the act of consumption becomes very significant. Now, I mentioned my, you know, my grandmother's knives and forks. The turnover time of, uh, of that is, you know, 100, 100 odd, 150 years. So what kinds of things can we produce these days which have instantaneous turnovers? Spectacle. And actually, you know, when de Boer wrote that thing about the society, the spectacle, I think he's really onto something because also spectacle is instantaneously consumed even though it takes a lot, a lot of, of, of initial material preparation. So that uh, the sorts of things I think of are uh, opening ceremonies of Olympic Games. How much, how much gets spent on all of that and how do you, tremendous resources are spent on it and it's all over within about, you know, half an hour. And, and that's it. So, so actually right now, more and more consumerism is more and more about stuff that are instantaneously uh, consumed. So that uh, this is why uh, that, that area, and again, that has cultural consequences, I think. Uh, very strong cultural consequences. Okay, let's have just a couple of quick-fire questions and then probably quick-fire answers if that's okay, okay David. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we're, unfortunately, we're running out of time. We're going to go with this gentleman here and we're going to go for the gentleman at the back. So quick-fire questions. Do you think Marx should be read today because he's an important historic figure like Darwin or do you think he still has something that is a unique voice that helps us solve problems today? Great, great question. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> See, everyone's playing by the rules. <laughs> well, my question actually is coincidentally related. Uh, when you say yes, uh, and given the major problems that the analysis that you've undertaken of financial systems and urban systems, I've, I was a town planner, so I'm particularly interested in the urban issues that you've raised. Uh, the answer is yes, there is relevance. How can that relevance in terms of its interpretation be translated into policy initiatives and action that can resolve and deal with these major questions of inequality uh, and imbalance and the way you've described the mounting debt, a sort of a financial equivalent of global warming? I, I, I don't think uh, the question is about policy. I mean, it's not, it's not hard to come up with all kinds of policies. Um, what's hard to do is uh, to generate a political movement that is going to force certain policies through. I mean, if you want to democratize a city, uh, nobody's going to do that for you. It's got to go out and be democratized by the people. And I think the same is true of uh, this attack upon inequality and all the rest of it. Uh, the fact is that we are now building cities for people to invest in, not, not necessarily decent places for people to live in. So we're putting an immense amount, of, New York puts an immense amount of money into building high-rise condominiums for the affluent and all the rest of it, which, you know, just for Saudi prince or something like that to have a kind of place to go shopping once every, you know, 10 months or something. So I think that the, the, the whole question here is the mobilization of social movements and what kinds of demands those social movements are going to make. And, and then you as a planner, once you've got a social movement there that says, hey, you've got to go do this, then you're going to go, it gives you much more latitude than if you sit there and try to figure out a policy that will actually satisfy the haute bourgeois and all the rest of it and uh, the, the big capital and the big developers and all the rest of it. Well, you know, you're foreclosed upon in terms of that. And so that, that to me is the, is the problem. That means, for me, uh, I think a lot of education and what the possibilities are and one of the reasons I try to make marks at least a little bit comprehensible is that so that people in the social movements can read it and get some sort of notion of of, of, of how this system is working and what they need to do in order to mobilize against it. Can the system be humanized, David? Humanized? Yes. Uh, you mean capitalism? Yes. <laughs> no. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you know, you know it, it, it's, 
it, it's very good at creating veneers. And, 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 and one of the things I really do like about Marx's notion of fetishism is the masks that get put over things. I mean, that review that came out in The Guardian the other day was great. I mean, it cited Theresa May saying we're about justice and everything for everybody. And then and says, so therefore capitalism is the answer. And you kind of go, well, capitalism produces all the injustice. What are you talking about? You know, I mean, this is. Good. Well, I think we'll finish on that note. Now, um, the book um, is available in the foyer. Um, it has immense use value, very little surplus uh, value, and um, is most definitely not a commodity product. Uh, I'm sure David, um, having shared his um, thoughts and ideas with you um, this lunchtime, will be happy to sign a few copies for you. Um, but join me in thanking David uh, for the Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.